You're listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net. And thanks for joining us. Amen. And thank you so much, Sarah. And again, it's so great to have all of you here this morning. And of course, those of you who are worshiping with us online. So by design, um, we're diving into God's word now because we are deliberately crafting this service today to be an extra long response time after the message with worship and taking communion off to the sides for those of you who are um, in person here this morning and what have you. So we're gonna, gonna dive right into God's word now. And as I was preparing for this passage this week, um, I was enjoying the good weather like so many of you. It's gonna be another 81 degree day today. I know the rain's coming, but for now, you know, we'll enjoy the sun. And I, I just love this kind of weather, and I love being out in the sun. And this time of year, when the weather starts to turn for us, and it starts to become sunny, and it starts to become the type of weather we want to be out in, it always reminds me of um, stuff I used to do in the summer as a middle school pastor, because we did a bunch of programming for our students that was outside. And one of my most favorite things that we used to do was um, we had this program called In Search of Staff. And I don't know if the Portland Zoo still does this, I think they do, but at least in that season, there was um, one day a month where it would be free. It'd be free admission to the zoo. So anyone could come and take advantage of that free admission. And so my staff and I, we would dress up in costumes for this event. And we'd go incognito into this zoo and we'd give kids um, this passport and they would have to find us. And of course, the ones who found the most of us got prizes and stuff. It was just a whole lot of fun. And I'll never forget the, the one year that my bride and I went like this, <laughs> as this elderly couple. And some of you look at that and go, boy, you know, you look pretty much the same, Jay, and that picture is, you know, as you do now, thank you very much. But we, we went in these various costumes, and this year, Jamie and I went as this elderly couple, and we knew if we stayed together, they'd find us for sure. So we, we um, separated and were in different parts of the zoo. And I had this one year, um, a guy who I knew that many of our middle school, middle school students wouldn't recognize pushed me around in a wheelchair. And so here I'm this old man in this wheelchair and um, even got some cheap cigars and they were awful. But, you know, just to try to go with the flow there and to go with the, go with the uniform and what we're trying to do. And we made sure that my back was always turned to these groups of students who would come by. And as the day went on, none of them could find me. They didn't recognize me. I must have looked the part somewhat. You know, I didn't done the silver hairspray and, you know, had my back to them and act as much like an old man as I thought I could. And it worked, apparently, because they kept going by us. And so my friend and I decided, well, let's give them a little help. Let's help them see who you really are. So we pushed the wheelchair out into the middle of the pavilion there where the main stage area is and the elephant pavilion and what have you and the zoo train comes by and one of the things we didn't think through was that the zoo train does come by every so often. And so my friend and I had this bright idea to take me in the wheelchair out in the middle of the field and then put me on my back. And so I just, yeah. Yeah, I know, I'd fire me too. And so... (laughs) I'm out there and all of a sudden the zoo train comes by and it begins to stop. The zoo train doesn't stop for anyone or anything, right? And it stops in the middle of the track. I can hear the conductor putting the brakes on or whatever you call the guy who runs the zoo train. And I hear these people begin to say, oh, look at the poor old man. 
he's having a cardiac event. Someone call 911. It's like, oh, my land. So now these security guards come, and we've almost got kicked out of the zoo. But, but our, our heart, our intention was good in that we were trying to help the students find us. We were trying to help them recognize who we were. Yeah, I know. Some of you are going, I, some of you are saying, I'm not surprised. I know Jay. And others of you are going, I really am surprised. But we're trying to give them some help to recognize us, to see who we really were. And Jesus, in this passage, is going to help the disciples see him for who he really is. We've seen very much so this progression of realization and appreciation and understanding of who Jesus really is as we've seen this progression of faith in the disciples over the last several weeks and even months. And now it's going to go to an even new level in this passage we're looking at this morning. But you have to appreciate the setting for this because Jesus is not only the master teacher, he is the master illustrator. And the things he's going to say about his identity, about their identity, about the identity of us, the church, is all going to take place in this setting. This is what the place would have looked like where this took place. This is near a city called Caesarea Philippi. And it is about as far north as you can get in the current nation of Israel and still be in Israel. It's right at the base of Mount Hermon. And this was a hot spot for evil. This place had a long history of human sacrifice, child sacrifice, the worship of Pan, who was this Greek mythical god of you know half person, half animal. Baal worship had taken place there in the past. And at this point in time, it was a a temple of worship for Caesar. And so Jesus is about to make these statements in this hot spot for evil, idolatrous religion. And this is what it looks like today. And again, when we went to Israel in 2016 and saw this, it's so hard to explain what it's like to be in a country, in a place of the world where there's so much ancient civilization. And literally, this is over 2,000 years old. This is the remnants of this place where Jesus makes this amazing statement about his identity and the church's identity and our identity. This is what it looks like today. So Jesus very deliberately now is setting the table and setting the scene for his reveal of who he really is once again to the disciples. So, okay, What difference does that make for you and me? It makes all the difference, and that's where we're going to go. So this is Matthew chapter 16. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and this is what it says. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. And then he ordered his disciples not to tell anyone 
that he was the Messiah. With that last verse there, I just want to comment on this because we're not going to look at it. We just don't have time to fully look at it with where we're about to go. But Jesus, the Father, they are deliberately working a plan and a process with Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah, as the promised one, as the anointed one. And there are, as we just saw, so many misperceptions of who he is among the people in the crowd that at one point they're threatening to make him king by force because they simply don't understand the kingdom of God and they don't understand his full identity. So you'll see these statements every so often now where Jesus at this point will say, don't tell anybody about me. And it sounds kind of weird, but it's very deliberate as he works the plan of how and when he is revealing himself. And he very deliberately is revealing himself to the disciples. And this is how he starts that. He says, who do the people say the son of man is? Now, there is an enormous hint here about his identity, and this is one of the first times he will use this designation in the Gospel of Matthew, and by the way, it is his most frequent used descriptor title for himself, and it is the Son of Man, and there is a very direct reference in the Old Testament and prophecy that that reaches back to. And we've looked at this before for those of you who have been with us for any length of time, but this is found in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter seven, and this is what this is referencing. In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. Catch this, he was given authority, glory, sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Who is that describing? Yes, the Son of Man, but that's describing God. Only God is worshiped. Only God has this kind of authority. Only God has said that people from every tribe, every tongue, every language, every nation, if we fast forward to Revelation chapter seven in the New Testament, is what's going to eventually happen. An everlasting dominion that will never pass away. Only God could say this. And interestingly enough, when Jesus asks this questions of the disciples, how does he address himself? Who do the people say the Son of Man is? You see, the reality is, God isn't hiding from you and me. He wants us to see him. He wants us to hear him. He wants us to recognize him. He wants us to see him for who he really is. And Jesus here is testing their faith. And once again, the reality is when God tests our faith, he always wants us to pass the test as opposed to our enemy who when he tests us, he always wants us to fail the test. When God gives us a test, he wants us to pass. Jesus is testing them. Who do they say he is? But first he asks who the crowds say he is. And now we can begin to appreciate why he says in verse 20, don't tell anyone about my true identity yet. Because the crowds still don't really get it. Like Herod. He thought that Jesus was John the Baptist back from the dead because Herod had had John the Baptist executed. Others thought, somewhat reasonably so, that he was Elijah because the Old Testament ends with a prophecy about Elijah will come and then the Messiah will come, but John the Baptist was the one who came in the spirit of Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, one of the major prophets from their history or just one of the other prophets. There's no question in people's minds that there's something special and significant and distinct about Jesus. But the crowd gets it wrong. And then Jesus is going to pivot from popular opinion and he's gonna get personal. 
And he looks at them and says, okay, but who do you say I am? And Peter answers on behalf of the disciples, and he hits the nail right on the head. But we need to stop and begin to look at this reality of a growing faith because that's what we looked at this week and we see this progression of faith once again. A growing faith starts with, any kind of faith, starts with recognizing who Jesus really is. Because my friends, the crowd, more often than not, still gets it wrong. And if you want evidence of this, you do what we all do when we want evidence, you go to Google. And you Google search, who is Jesus? And you will be astounded at what comes up. I did it yesterday. And you begin to look through the pages, and it's like, holy cow. Yeah, the crowd is getting it wrong. Most don't get it. Despite the fact that God wants everyone to get it. Because the crowd these days will say, well, Jesus is an avatar. Jesus is a prophet. Jesus is a, is a great teacher. Jesus is a sage. Jesus is an example. In fact, ironically, every major world religion wants Jesus to be a part of it. He's in every world religion. That's not true of any other religious figure, if you want to call him that. Everybody wants Jesus as part of their religion. Everybody recognizes there's something special and distinctive and significant about Jesus, but by and large, the crowd gets it wrong. And some of us might say, well, what's the big deal? I mean, why all this about Jesus' identity? Because my friends, and we talked about this in my Facebook sermon preview, this isn't a question, this is the most important question you and I have to do business with in this life. There is no more important question than this. Who is Jesus Christ? Because if he is who he said he is, it changes absolutely everything. But here's the deal. You can't come up with this on your own. You cannot recognize Jesus' true identity on your own. What does Jesus say here? You did not come up with this on your own, Peter. You got some help. This was revealed to you by my Father in heaven. This is consistent with what Jesus said in the Gospel of John, and he says this a couple times in John chapter six. This is one of them. This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. And another way to say this is no one can come to me unless the Father has helped them. You need God's help to recognize who Jesus is. And Jesus commends Peter not just because he recognizes who he really is, but because he responds to God's help, which now comes back around to you and me. Who is Jesus to you? And are you receiving God's help in figuring that out? Because the reality is, Jesus has to get personal with you. This isn't about a principle. This isn't about a precept. This isn't about a code or a creed. This is about a person. The one true God, the relational God, who is pursuing you and me for relationship. You actually need his help to see him and respond to him. Many years ago when we took our kids to Disneyland for the first time, Jamie surprised me and this was a, a drive that we took to, to Disneyland and the trip back was its own story that I'll tell you another time. 
But on the way there, on this long drive, we started going off the beaten track. We got off I-5 and we're going, you know, on this other highway and my wife was driving and I said, Jamie, where are we going? She said, you'll see, with a twinkle in her eye and her smile that she gives me on those occasions. And sure enough, we went someplace I was not expecting to go. You see, many of you know my story because I've told it periodically through the years of when Jesus got personal with me. It was at a Young Life camp when I was a freshman in high school, camp in the Sierra Nevadas of California. And in this camp, everything the speaker said seemed to be directly not only relatable to my life, but it felt like I was the only one in the room and he was speaking to me. Now, for those of us who know the Lord, know that's not a coincidence. That's God himself. That's his Holy Spirit speaking to you or speaking to me when we have those types of experiences. And so when it came to the end of the night where we were supposed to make a decision one way or the other, I chose to recognize and respond to Jesus' true identity and to receive him into my life as my Lord and Savior. He got very personal with me that night. And I didn't hear the audible voice of God, but in my heart, I knew that he was who I had been looking for. He was the one true God. He was pursuing me. And so Jamie surprised me with this trip and taking me to Woodleaf, this young life camp, where so many years earlier, I had met the Lord Jesus Christ because he had gotten personal with me. And it was under this very tree where that happened. Now the significance isn't the tree. The significance is what happened under the tree. Which brings us another question. In your spiritual journey, has Jesus gotten personal with you? Has he revealed himself to you? And just as importantly, have you responded? We need God's help to recognize him for who he is. And just one brief note from this before we move on. If you are asking questions about Jesus, if you're wrestling with, is he God, is he not? If you find yourself drawn to, to read the Bible and to, and to begin to settle this for yourself, if you find yourselves for self for some reason watching this, worshiping online, and you just keep coming back because something in you wants to hear more about this, or those kinds of things happening in your life, my friends, that's not just you. That is proof, that is evidence that God through his Holy Spirit is trying to communicate with you and is trying to help you understand and see him for who he really is. And that, in essence, is a process and it is a progression. And this is really good news for those of us who know the Lord already and really good news for those of us who don't. For those of us who are still wrestling with who Jesus is and we're just, we're not quite sure we're ready to take that step to receive him into our lives as our God, as our Savior, or we're just not quite ready to fully follow him with every part of our lives, one of the encouraging things about this passage is this, that this spiritual journey we're on is a process, and it, and it is a progression. Man, we see this in the lives of the disciples. This is not the first time 
they begin to understand and appreciate who Jesus really is. Remember in Matthew 14, what we went through together where they're out in this windstorm, this unexpected windstorm in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. They're going nowhere. Jesus comes out to them on the water, walking on the water. Peter gets out and temporarily walks on the water and Jesus rescues him as he begins to sink and as he takes his eyes off him and they all get in the boat together and this is what they say. Truly, you are the Son of God. Matthew's the only gospel writer who captures this for us. And they got it right. But many scholars, and I, it seems to me that they're right, believe that this is profoundly significant with what Matthew says in our passage today because he takes it a step further and he gets even more specific and says, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one. You are the chosen one. You are the son of God. There is this progression, this understanding, this realization of who Jesus is really is, but my friends, it's taken time. As I think back on my spiritual journey, that defining moment under that tree was something that was in process for years. And even the prior year, I had gone to these Young Life meetings and you know, I'd heard about the Jesus stuff and I was more there because there were cute girls and food and friends there and that's why I was there, but I kinda listened to the message, but in hindsight, so much of what was being said made sense to me and was drawing me in and I, and I could see these things that were happening as a process for God reaching into my life throughout the course of my life, drawing me to himself. The same is true for you. He's, he's reaching for you. He's revealing himself to you. And my friends, what's really important for us to understand is the unforgivable sin that we've already looked at in Matthew 12 that Jesus speaks to is the consistent persistent denial, ignoring, quenching of the Holy Spirit and his work in your life. God will pursue you and me and pursue you and me and pursue you and me, but there is a point where if we keep denying him, if we keep saying no, then he's gonna let us choose what we're choosing. And so it's so fundamentally important that we respond to him when he's in our lives. And for those of us who do know the Lord, Man, this is so encouraging. The disciples are so encouraging to me because they blow it so many times. Peter is gonna epically blow it next week when Sean brings us this next passage. And Jesus has this endless patience with us and the process, but we see him at times say, you of little faith, or are you really still so dull, you know, my life first? Because... There are times we're not using what he's already given us. It's not because he's being impatient with our faith process, it's because we're not using the faith we already have, and we've looked at that in prior weeks. But it's so important that we remember identity, and now we come to the heart of this, this amazing passage. And frankly, these next verses are some of the most debated and discussed and wrestled with verses in the entire Gospel of Matthew. And in some circles, in the New Testament. Because of what's said here, there's so many layers to this, and we are not gonna solve and answer every single question with the amount of time we have with what these verses say, but we're certainly gonna get the gist. And the vast majority of folks, as they wrestle and debate and discuss this passage, agree with the things we're about to talk about. But he says something remarkable about Peter's identity. He says, literally, you are rocky, and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Again, a lot of debate and discussion about what does this mean? 
And this is where we, we part ways with our Catholic brothers and sisters and friends because this is where papal supremacy and the idea of a pope and papal succession comes from. And, and we don't think it's teaching that, but we do think and we do all agree that Peter is being singled out for a special role. That there is a first among equal status that he has with the disciples. He's the spokesman of the disciples. He's the one who answers and confesses who Jesus is on behalf of the disciples. So yes, he has a unique role and authority and he certainly was a leader in the early church and look what it goes on to say that he's gonna give him, and this is specific to him, the keys of the kingdom of heaven and we honestly don't fully understand what that means but we have some ideas and I think this is a very reasonable and understandable idea that Peter in his unique role in the early church is gonna go to some people groups and be one of the first ones to proclaim the gospel. Because the idea of a key is to open a door or to close and lock a door, right? And so with that idea, this is true, Peter is the one who preaches the sermon in Acts 2, where literally 3,000 people choose to follow Jesus that day as their Lord and Savior. Not a bad sermon, right? We We can go with that. But he's the one to do that. He's one of the first ones to go to the Samaritans in Acts chapter eight and to help them understand and receive the Holy Spirit. He's one of the first ones, not the only one, but one of the first ones to go to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. So it seems very reasonable, and again, there's a pretty good consensus agreement that at the very least it means this, that God is gonna use him uniquely, but interestingly enough, it goes on to say this, and this is one of those statements that we come to where we can scratch our heads a little bit. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosened in heaven. And what this is really doing is reaching for a frame of reference that they would have had, but that most of us don't have. And the frame of reference for this was in rabbinical teaching with the religious leaders of the nation, they would declare and assert what was allowable or permissible and what was denied in terms of living for God. They had an authority to proclaim that, not to set the terms, but to proclaim the terms. And that's the frame of reference for what this means. So hang with me here. This is all gonna begin to congeal real quick. He's saying that Peter has the authority to declare what God has already done or is going to do. And he will do that with power and with authority. But interestingly, in the very next chapter, this very authority and power is given to the disciples and to the church. Who has this power and authority? I do. And you do, as the church. We have the power and authority to not only live for God, but to proclaim the works of God, to allow the power of God to work through us, and to declare to this world who Jesus is, and then to go live that out. It's, it's remarkable. So yes, the rock, the foundation of the church, ultimately is Jesus, was Peter in this unique role, is the apostles and the prophets and those who have come before us in Ephesians chapter two, verse 20 in the New Testament, but it's also the church. Faith ultimately finds its foundation in the church, and this is now, this gets real practical real quick. So if we have the authority, the power, the ability, we are called to declare 
the works of God, the word of God, the power of God, what does this actually look like in our lives together? Some time ago, I was um, talking with um, some friends, and they were working through some, some struggles together. There was forgiveness that needed to happen, and they had come to me and asked if we could talk through that together, and, and, and so we did. And there was a point where they worked a very deliberate forgiveness process that we walked through together using the Word of God and applying that. And then I very deliberately and necessarily, when that process had been worked through, when that person who had been wronged said, I forgive you, turned to the offender, the one who had caused the hurt, and said, in the name of Jesus Christ and by his authority and by his written word, I declare you forgiven. Now, did I do something on my own there? No. I didn't forgive him. There was nothing for me to forgive. God, based on the promises and reality and truth of his word, had forgiven him. But he needed that proclaimed in his life. And my friends, some of you have needed someone to look you in the eye in the name of Jesus and to rightfully say, as a fellow brother and sister in Jesus Christ, God forgives you. Because this is what's described in James chapter 5 where it says, confess your sins to one another. That is an example of us using the authority and power that God has given us to declare what God is doing or has already done. And the reason that happened wasn't because we were in a church building, but because we were in church community, which also begs the question, are you? Are you meaningfully in community? Because as we've all been reminded this last year and a half, sometimes very painfully, church isn't a building. Church is a community. And to your credit, you're here this morning or you're listening online or you're gonna see this as a recording online down the road. And yes, this is a very important part of what it means to be the church but if this is all you're involved in, if this is all you're engaged in, you're not really meaningfully involved in the church the way Jesus has taught and talked about the value of church. You see, this serving with grace focus that we're doing is not some slick way for us to try to get more of you involved, although we unapologetically want to do that. It's as much for your benefit as it is ours. Because there is a dimension of your faith, of your relationship with God, of your depth and intimacy with God you are not going to experience until you literally roll up your sleeves and you join forces with someone else in the church and you are the church together. And that has lots of different looks and works itself out in lots of different ways. But there are some of you who frankly are not progressing in your growth and development and intimacy with the Lord because this is all you get. Now, understandably, it's been COVID and we've been very restricted in many ways from being able to be the church the way we need to be. And yes, for those of you in our online community, there are many good reasons for you to be in our online community. But parking all that for just a minute, we don't get to let this go quite so easily. Are we being the church together with one another? Because, because we need to be, because it's how we discover God. And there is a power that we have together that Jesus rightfully references here. 
He says, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And again, this is talked about what's really meant here. Some things that again, we have some consensus agreement on is the gates of Hades represents death. And literally the word picture for the words that are used here is a gate that's drawn across the cave of a dead body. Does that sound like anything significant that's happened? Many scholars believe, and it seems like they're right, this is a direct reference to what Jesus is going to do. That death, even Jesus' own death, is not going to stop the power and progression and mission and calling of the church. In fact, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus is what empowers us as a church. Amen, I hope you believe that because it's true. Which means then by application that we are to join in this divine rescue mission for the world. We bring the kingdom of God with us because we're the church. We are God's chosen mechanism, God's chosen vehicle, God's chosen community to declare the kingdom of God and to live that kingdom out. Which means then where there is brokenness, we bring hope. Where there's help needed, we give it. Where there's a need we can do something about, we actually do. Where there's despair, we bring hope. We could go on and on because what's interesting to me, and this was something that I appreciated for the first time in this passage, was what is the church doing as Jesus in this hot spot of evil and demonic activity and vile things that have been done? What is the church doing? What is Jesus proclaiming as he asserts his identity, Peter's identity, and our identity as the church? Is the church hunkering down and just hoping to ride out what's happening in the world? No. Do you realize that all this language is about a church that isn't on the defensive, but that is on the offensive? This is about a church that is rescuing people literally from hell, a life without Jesus Christ. This is about a church that is being deliberate and intentional and missional. Matthew chapter eight, excuse me, 28, verses 18 through 20, the last recorded words we have of Jesus, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. That is not about a timid, scared, hunkered down, defensive church. That's about a church that is on mission and intentional and deliberate about what they are doing. Someone recently said to me, I don't understand why we have outreach. And I said, I don't understand how you come to that conclusion and know Jesus Christ. When Jesus came, did he set up a booth and say, the Messiah is in, come on by? No, he was constantly going to people, going to brokenness, going to the least people culture would recognize and rescuing them from a life of brokenness and loneliness and life apart from him. That's exactly what we're called to do. We unapologetically do backpack blessings and stuff for East Gresham Elementary and Advent Conspiracy and the Community Garden and the host of other things we do because corporately together as the church, we are called to be the church and those are some of the ways that we do that. So are you part of the divine rescue mission? Or are you hunkered down just hoping to get by there is a power, there is identity, there is a reality that God wants us all to experience corporately together. When Gary Bashir ends his messages, he rightfully says, go and change the world. That is exactly what we are to be about. Loving people, giving people, forgiving people, initiating with people, extending relationship, doing something about needs where we can, when we can, and declaring 
the one true God. So as our worship team comes, and as we prepare to respond to God's word this morning, are you a part of the divine rescue mission? Are you responding to the Holy Spirit as he gives you opportunity to tell someone about Jesus, to serve someone in the name of Jesus, to give to someone in the name of Jesus? That's what we're called to do and that's what we're called to be. So we've crafted this time very deliberately to be a time for you to respond and I'm happy to tell you that once again, we have communion elements off to the side. For those of you who are here in person, they're in the little self-contained packets, please, as an act of worship, go and take communion. Remind yourself of what Jesus has done for you. We have been rescued. If you know Jesus Christ, you have been rescued. You think about that, and that's what compels you and me to be a part of rescuing others. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for who you are. Thank you for the power that comes from knowing you, being in right relationship with you, living for you. I pray for anyone in this room or who is watching or will be watching online that if they don't know you, they would allow you to get personal with them. They would allow you to invite them into the kingdom as they're being invited in now and they would respond by choosing to trust you and love you and follow you as their Lord and Savior. And Lord, for those of us who do know you, would you remind us all over again who we are, what we're called to be, what we are to be about, what we have together in community as your church. And Lord, we give you the glory and the praise and the honor now. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. You know, for those of us who are gathered here in person, this is the first time in I think about a year and a half I've been able to hear all of your collective voices this morning, and I've missed you, and I've missed that. It's so rich. Hallelujah. He is a God who has done great things. And because our spiritual journey is a process, and it is a progression, what's the next step for you? For those of you who are here in the room, or those who will be watching or are watching online, If this makes sense to you, if Jesus' identity is becoming clearer for you, if you feel compelled in any way to follow him as your Lord and Savior and you've never done that before, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. That is God helping you step into his kingdom. Man, respond to that. Don't resist that. Don't hesitate. Don't question that. And all you need to do to respond to him and step into his kingdom is to receive. Jesus, thank you that you love me. I now choose to follow you and trust you with my life. It really is that simple. There are no magic words. What matters most is the attitude of your heart. And speaking of the attitude of your heart, for those of us who do know the Lord, who do love the Lord, what is the next step for us? Have you ever in your spiritual journey declared publicly that you love Jesus by being baptized? We would love to baptize you next week. Man, reach out to one of our elders or pastoral staff. All of our contact information is at gracecc.net. We would love, love to do that for you. And maybe for some of us, it's remembering we are collectively the church. And so what's the next step for us in that? As we go out into this world that is broken, that doesn't recognize who Jesus is or fully understand what he's done, will we go there with someone this week if the Lord gives us the opportunity to? 
Will we love someone, give to someone, and expect nothing in return? That is kingdom living. And that's part of what it means to be the church. But remember who he is. Remember who you are. And now to the king. Eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We go from here to serve you and live for you. Amen. So now go and live for him. I'm so glad you were here. Thank you for joining us for Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church here in Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to follow us online, please go to gracecc.net. That's gracecc.net.